We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at our Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And on this episode of Pop Torah, we are going to be looking at the new Netflix original movie, The Two Popes, starring Anthony Hopkins as Pope Benedict XVI uh, and Jonathan Price as uh, the man who would become Pope Francis. Uh, some uh, incredible acting and incredible uh, cast uh, for this um, uh, award season bait drama and biopic. Uh, Jesse, you want to start us off by giving us a little bit of a synopsis about the film? Sure. Um, as Mike said, this is uh, really well into award season. This was nominated for a Golden Globe uh, and it's nominated for an Academy Award as well. It's, I guess we could call it historical fiction. It tells of the true visits between Pope Benedict XVI and Cardinal uh, Bergoglio, who becomes Pope Francis. Uh, we don't know what takes place at that bi- visit, um, although uh, it was written by Anthony McCartan, and he suggests um, what it is, adapted from his play that came out in 2017 uh, of the same story. That play was entitled The Pope. And it, it begins by um, with the death of Pope John Paul II and uh, all of the cardinals coming to Vatican City to elect a new pope. And Joseph Ratzinger, the German colonel, was elected, becomes Pope Benedict XVI. Bergoglio, who is the colonel from Buenos Aires, uh, the archbishop of Buenos Aires, he got the second highest vote total. Very interesting in that uh, Bergoglio seemed as a more of a progressive as well as less interested in the pomp and circumstance and material goods that come along with the high church the, uh, of Vatican. Um, Benedict XVI was much more interested in the clothing and attire and all the added benefits that came with being the Pope. Um, since that election, which took place in 2005, there was a scandal that involved the Vatican uh, and really embroiled in that scandal and Benedict's leadership comes into question and is tainted. Um, They have this meeting because Bergoglio doesn't like the direction that the church is going, so he wants to resign to the Pope. He doesn't hear a response from the Pope in his attempt to resign as Archbishop. Uh, So he goes to Vatican to resign in person, and that's when he's called to the Palace of Castel Gandolfo, which is the Pope's summer residence. And they meet there, and Benedict XVI refuses to 
accept his resignation and instead they, they meet they talk about faith and they talk about god they talk about priesthood and they talk about the future of the church there are a couple of flashbacks that show when the eventual pope francis was young and what led him to uh the church and what led him to a life in the priesthood uh, and it concludes with benedict telling him the secrets that you can't tell anybody but i'm going to step down as pope i don't want this uh i'm going to step down and the direction of the of the church is more inclined with your direction and when he does deliver his resignation a year after this meeting a year after this conversation bergoglio is elected as the successor in 2013 at the next uh, papal conclave and he becomes pope francis uh, and concludes with the two of them watching, you know, joyously the World Cup together. Uh, I remember, Mike, when both of these happened, uh, I remember actually mm -hmm. sitting in class at the Jewish Theological Seminary in a Talmud class, and we stopped to watch the election of uh, Ratzinger as Pope Benedict XVI because at the time, at least in 2005, we thought what uh, uh, momentous occasion this is. This is really a once-in-a-generation experience to see the ritual of the Catholic Church electing a new pope, little did we know, really, that less than a decade later, they would elect another pope. This is the first time in, I, I think, uh, in hundreds and hundreds of years um, that a pope stepped down while he was still alive, and they chose to elect a new pope. Right. There's a, there's a funny moment in, in the movie where, uh, after Benedict... Uh, tells um, Bergoglio that he plans on on resigning. He, uh, Bergoglio says this is unprecedented, and, and Benedict says, "No, it happened, you know, in like the in the 13th century or something like that." <laughs> and uh, and uh, Bergoglio says something to the effect of, "Like you'll you'll forgive, you know, the one billion Catholics in the world if uh, they take as a shock uh, and as a novel thing something that uh, happened, you know, last 700 years ago." <laughs> Um, and I just uh, want to say, Jesse, that yeah. uh, that that really you nailed all of those languages that you had to uh, uh, intone in, in talking about the different names and uh, places <laughs> that were brought up in this film. Really, <laughs> ah, thank you. Um, I, I spent three days in the Vatican, so my uh, you, you should you should ask me to say buongiorno. It, it's it's really uh, the the when, when when I would say it. Uh, to the bellman at the front desk of the hotel every morning. <laughs> right. Also, uh, uh, true story. I think I ate at the uh, pizza place nearby uh, St. Peter's Square uh, that uh, that the two popes uh, order pizza from uh, in uh, toward the uh, toward the end of the movie. So you know, so I felt right there uh, in the action. <laughs> I also um, uh, not long after uh, Benedict was elected pope. Um, was was the one time in my uh, life that I've uh, ever been to Rome, in, in an incredible trip. Um, but uh, uh, we, uh, through a good guidebook, uh, figured out how to uh, attend a um, uh, a relatively small mass that uh, you can get tickets to that the Pope puts on uh, every week. So uh, I like to tell people that I met the Pope um, uh, because I was it was just me in an intimate gathering of like you know three hundred uh, other. Uh, uh, worshippers and well and uh, and and tourists uh, who got to be in the uh, immediate presence of uh, of ben ben uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. It was uh, quite an experience. <laughs> um, 
You know, Mike, looking at, at the film, uh, there were a couple of things that stood out to me. One was how fascinated I am uh, about the role of leadership um, in the Catholic Church and the role really of how you elect influential leaders. I don't think there's anything like that in Judaism as far as the role that one individual plays. Maybe the closest that we have to that would be uh, the role that the Lubavitcher Rebbe played uh, in the Chabad movement. Again, he's deceased, been deceased for a generation, but I think that may come closest. Um, but but I find it fascinating how this movie looks at a couple things. One, the transition of leadership, for starters, um, as well as the the lonely life, the the only lives that these popes live because of their spiritual leadership roles. Yeah, you know, it's it's so it's uh, it's a combination, I think, of um, the nature of of spiritual leadership, um, and I think that uh, uh, all of us uh, as clergy, um, even those of us who have, thankfully, like I do, um, you know, I'm very blessed to have a wonderful family and, and good friends, um, but on some level, the nature of spiritual leadership is inherently lonely. Um, that. Um, uh, so first of all, we live in in a you know very secular world, uh, such that you know the 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 close friends that that I have, who by and large um, uh, don't live particularly you know religious lives, um, uh, there's something you know um, really kind of other about my life and about the way I live my life that as as close as we are and as much as I uh, trust and value their friendship, there's there's an aspect of the way that I have to live and the way that I engage in the world that they just don't understand. Even, even in a lot of senses, my, my, uh, my family or closest to me, um, don't, aren't fully able to kind of step into my shoes. I'm not saying that, to you know, sound a violin for me because I'm, uh, very, uh, I, I, I have fortunately a, a great life. Um, but there is something, uh, lonely about, uh, about the role of spiritual leader. I see it in, I do a lot of interfaith work, um, here in Richmond and, and beyond. Um, and I see it in clergy of, of all denominations and, and faith. So there's, there's just, uh, um, there's something about the nature. I mean, maybe the nature of leadership in general, that it's lonely, but I think there's something unique about spiritual leadership that is, and then add on to that, um, the the life of celibacy that uh, that that priests are uh, Catholic priests are asked to take, where you know they uh, uh, you know for in 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 modern history anyway uh, don't have uh, families or or, or children. Um, uh, that well, you has... certainly saw that in Pope mm -hmm. Francis uh, in the flashbacks that led. Uh, to that, that showed his decision um, to go into papal life um, and, and the priesthood, showing that he was really choosing between a woman and God. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, you know, it, it, what, what's interesting is that there's an element of the loneliness of clerical life that is self-imposed, right? So, so Benedict is, is very lonely, but, uh, but in a lot of senses it's by choice whereas uh bergoglio uh, eventually francis um is is incredibly social um and surrounds himself with people and is incredibly comfortable with people uh there's this 
there's this scene in which uh, so Bergoglio is visiting uh, the the uh, Benedict at uh, his uh, summer home where he had come to give his re- resignation, uh, and uh, uh, Benedict invites him to have dinner. And so he thinks he's going to meet Benedict for dinner, but he uh, sits down at the table and realizes Benedict isn't coming. And the servant says uh, that uh, that he chooses to eat alone. You see a cut to him eating alone. So Francis is served the exact same thing that Benedict is eating. Um, right. So as so, you know, so, so as to suggest that they're eating together, but they're really you know eating alone. So some of so some of Benedict's loneliness is is self imposed. Um, you know, so there's there's a way in which the life of leadership and the life of spiritual leadership is inherently lonely. And there's a way in which um, spiritual leaders sometimes might choose loneliness for various reasons. Isolation. Yeah, you know, I I remember um, during first semester of my first year of rabbinical school, um, we were all asked to read a book by uh, Rabbi Jack Bloom, Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever read this book, The Rabbi yeah. is Symbolic Exemplar. Sure, sure. Um, right. It's it for rabbis in and, the field. Uh, yeah. Rabbis and other clergy and the laity who care about them and their sacred work. And it really focuses on how lonely this work is, uh, being a, a member of the clergy. And I couldn't stand it. I mean, truthfully, I said this as a rabbi, I, I couldn't deal with it. Uh, part of it was loneliness by choice. It was making this distinction that members of your congregation, members of your flock, uh, of your community, your parishioners could not really be your close friends because they always see you as rabbi. It was putting the clergy person on this high pedestal like the Pope and saying that if you ever got too close to them, then they wouldn't be able to see you as this spiritual leader. Uh, and it, it just didn't do it for me because that's not what I envisioned my rabbinate to be. How do you build relationships with people if you're on two separate levels? If they see you up here and they're down there, I don't want them to see me as rabbi, as see me as foreign or as see me as separates. Um, I wanted them, even from that moment in, in seminary, to see me as rabbi, as their friends, as somebody to grab a drink with, as somebody to see a movie with, because if they only saw me as distant, then they also saw the faith uh, that I lived and the way I lived my Jewish life as something distant. But if they saw me on their level, then they were able to see Judaism as something that was on their level and accessible as well. Right. Although I, I would say that that for for me it's a little bit uh, I, uh, the picture is a little bit more complicated um, because I I, um, I I certainly you know didn't see in in Rabbi Bloom's book and in and other you know rabbinic models that I saw or clerical models that I saw something to aspire to um, in that respect. But I saw it as um, you know in some ways a, a fair description of how people tend to relate. To, uh, to to clergy and there's a and there's a way in which um, having that dynamic um, is uh, is is beneficial and and is useful spiritually right so um, on the one hand I, I agree with everything that you just said Jesse and that's a that's a, a core part of my rabbinate and my rabbinic identity too uh, to, uh, to 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 um, to see me and therefore uh, Judaism as 
a you know a, as a as a a, a a a part of a real person's life, um, uh, and that um, and that uh, and that you, you don't have to uh, be something you know holier than thou um, in order to have a relationship with God and a relationship with your tradition. But on the other hand, you know there there are times in which um, the sort of otherness of uh, being a rabbi or being a clergy person um, is is really important and really useful. You know, so um, so yes, when I'm you know sitting at the bedside of a congregant who is ill, it's helpful to have a meaningful personal relationship with them. Um, on the other hand, um, it's also in some ways beneficial, you know, that they didn't see me drunk at a party, right, uh, or uh, or something like that, because um, in that moment you are representing for them something more than just you right so it's it's i think it's kind of complicated don't you think sure i think that that speaks to um right what we call being a dumai sheep being right i guess as jack bloom uh translated a symbolic exemplar it means leading by example absolutely but the question is what example do we want to leave you lead um you don't want somebody to see you in a way that they think is antithetical to the Judaism that we're trying to teach. Um, I, I think that's also why Benedict got in trouble. I think that's why the Catholic Church has uh, yeah. been having a rough time because both the Vatican leak scandal that he dealt with, but also with the, the scandal of... Um, child abuse and, and yeah. sexual assault among priests and the church being guilty time and time again of trying to hide that right. um, and not take responsibility saying, well, how can you say you stand for X when I see you stand for Y that you're talking out of both sides of your mouth, right? That's when I, I think we talk about leadership. It's don't just show me with your words, show me with your actions. Um, because otherwise the words that you're preaching uh, are meaningless. Right. I, you know, and I think that there's, there's another dimension to it too, which is, um, uh, you know, and again, like in, in some ways you want, I remember having a teacher in high school, my, my high school European history teacher, um, who, uh, you know, we were talking about, um, the, the Catholic church and, you know, this sort of like, you know, early, uh, uh, early, uh, you know, medieval European, uh, um, beginnings. Um, but he said something like this. He said, you know, um, uh, you, you, most people don't want a religion that changes all the time because, um, because first of all, like what, you know, what, what does that say? Uh, you know, it, it reflects, um, it reflects sort of like a fickle and capricious God, uh, that, uh, um, that, that sort, sort of always has new demands of you, um, or is created in the image of the people that you're, that you're serving. And on the other hand, um, you don't want a, a religion that, that, that never changes, that never adapts with the time, times because, um, because human beings are dynamic and society is dynamic. And the church, I think, represents, the Catholic church, I think, you know, this is again, you know, I, I'm speaking as somebody, uh, on the outside of it. Uh, looking in, and so there may be Catholic listeners to this, and I have uh, Catholic friends and, and friends in the Catholic clergy um, that would uh, be interesting to bring into this conversation. Um, but but my sense of you know what has been very challenging, especially uh, for the Catholic Church in the West, they talk about this in the in in the movie in a, in, a, in a few places. The the um, the uh, 
the fleeing uh, from from the church that uh, uh, that that we're seeing is um, uh, is in part due to the fact that the church um, uh, is you know set up as sort of like a medieval hierarchy um, in an increasingly democratic time, and so people um, people are used to um, uh, dialogue and and personal investigation and personal journey and and uh, and and egalitarianism and access and and the church is you know um, what they used to say about the uh, about uh, uh, the bema or the pulpit in um, in older designed uh, churches and synagogues that it was you know raised up so that the rabbi or the or the pastor would be six feet above criticism right and that the uh, the Catholic Church um, is is sort of institutionalized. That way, um, that uh, uh, that is increasingly out of step with uh, people's um, social reality and therefore also um, their spiritual reality. Uh, and and the other piece of it also that I think you're you're um, getting at, Jesse, is that the um, uh, is that the that sort of denial of human reality that is. Um, you know, characteristic in some ways of um, of, of Catholicism and and especially of the priesthood um, is you know is, is not only um, a child, you know out of step with the kind of spiritual reality of the times that we live in, um, but also um, uh, a potential potentially what contributed to the um, to the sex abuse scandals that we're seeing. I mean, the, that's. Um, arguments that uh, that the number of people who are smarter and more informed on this subject than I am uh, have made that um, uh, that there's that uh, uh, child abuse and uh, sex abuse within the Catholic Church is a is a is a, a feature of the system and and not a um, and not you know uh, um, a, a bug that only seems to disproportionately affect um, the Catholic priesthood. I mean, obviously, it happens within um, other uh, religious traditions and clerical ranks too. Judaism is not immune to it, uh, sure. but it's but, but so pervasive within Catholicism, perhaps in part because priests are expected to, um, to essentially be unhuman. Um, maybe, I, I mean, I don't, I don't wanna go on that tangent too much and partially can't speak to it. I, I do think it's disappointing how the Catholic Church have tried to sweep this under the rug, even under Pope Francis. Although Pope Francis was was lauded uh, when he came into power um, as somebody who wasn't as concerned with his sexual ethics uh, or or fighting over lines of authority, um, he was Time Magazine Person of the Year in 2013 when he became Pope because he wanted to focus on the healing mission of the Catholic Church and use it as a comforter. Uh, uh, for people who were hurting in a world that at times feels very harsh. He was seen as much more of a progressive, is seen as much more of a progressive than his predecessor, than, than Benedict, uh, who was much more of a conservative. Although I think for the progressive community, they assumed overnight that uh, he would celebrate the LGBTQ community. He would be pro-choice, all these things. Uh, I, I don't think he's there. I think that that's certainly not where he or the church is. Right. Um, but he is much more focusing on loving each other and not judging each other. Um, that you are more lenient on other people. You could be stringent on yourself, but more lenient on other people. Um, it makes me think of, as I'm continuing doing this Doth Yomi study, um, there, were, there was a um, teaching 
on uh, Barajo 22a, where it's talking about how one who is tahor, how one who is spiritually impure becomes tameh again, becomes uh, ritually pure again. Um, and Rabbi Yehuda does something for himself, which he himself doesn't require for other people. And his students uh, challenge Yehuda and they say, but you don't require that. Why would you do that? And he responds by saying, I'm lenient with others, but more stringent on myself, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, an important statement that are we hold ourselves to a certain standard. But are, are we guilty of too often holding other people to that same standard or a higher standard? Or sh- are we better off by by being lenient in how we treat each other? And I think for Pope Francis, that was the way he tried to take the church by saying, you know what? We have to embrace each other as, as humans made in God's image. It's not for me to judge other people. It's not for God to judge other people. Not saying that the church condones X, Y, or Z. But it's just, it's up, you know, I'm going to embrace others. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think that that's a really uh, um, beautiful uh, description of the, um, the, the approach uh, Francis, both Francis the, uh, the Pope and, uh, and, and the character in the movie uh, seem to take. And, and also um, the, the, the roots of that ethic um, or the manifestation of that ethic with, within our own tradition. I, um, you know, I, and I think it's also worth uh, pointing out that, you know, um, uh, that some of, you know, uh, the, the promise of this, uh, of this Pope, um, you know, has come to fruition. Uh, you know, he, he, he has been um, an incredible leading voice, um, arguably, you know, one of the most forceful voices in the West, um, on issues like uh, climate change and, and the environment, um, and so that's been and poverty um, and poverty, you know. So th- those and, and and human rights. So th- those have been that 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 that's been really significant. And I I wonder, you know, I wonder this about him, and and I you know the the movie um, touched on this is you know I wonder how um, how slow moving. Uh, uh, Francis's uh, reforms seem to be within the church. Is it, um, is it because he actually has a more you know modest reform agenda than than people kind of projected onto him, um, or is it? Uh, and I know that that you've experienced this, Jesse. I know I can certainly say that I have. That you know the nature of spiritual leadership is such um, that you you can't always. Uh, um, uh, move the ball forward um, as uh, quickly or as aggressively um, as uh, as you might want to. That there, um, that the that the nature of leadership, the nature of spiritual leadership is that you have to sort of honor um, the, the 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 voices and the experiences of, of people who are um, uh, who are uh, slower, more reticent to to embrace change, uh, and um, and that the nature of moving an institution forward um, in a particular direction. Um, is sometimes very hard, especially if it's a as large and as uh, um, uh, legacy of an institution as as the Catholic Church. Um, it's it's extraordinarily hard, um, even if you are theoretically infallible. Sure, I mean that's why I identify uh, as a conservative Jew, uh, not necessarily because. I always identify with the conservative movement in Judaism. I have my own issues with movement institutions, but that's a whole nother podcast. Um, 
for me, it's really about the ideology of conservative Judaism, which is one that believes in the evolution of halakha, of Jewish law. Um, that we're constantly interpreting and reinterpreting and reinterpreting to best understand what we believe God wants from us and how to interact with God in this world and in our lives. And what that means is that the way we best understood it centuries ago in a different part of the world, or even decades ago in this part of the world, may be different than the way we understand it now. Truly understanding that society impacts and influences the way we view religion and the way we view religion, even in a world where we believe in a separation of church and state, the way we view religion impacts society. It's really this idea of evolution of practice. While it may be slow to change, the ideology that religious practice evolves makes sense. Uh, I remember that um, Chancellor Arnie Eisen, who's uh, the current chancellor of the Jewish Logical Seminary, once told me about uh, how when he would visit his daughter for Shabbat services at a conservative synagogue, that minion looks so different than the minion he chose to, to daven at, the minion he chose to worship at. And he said, as it should, because the Judaism that she grew up with is different than the Judaism that he grew up with, which is different than the Judaism that his parents grew up with, uh, because time was different and history was different and society was different and experience was different. Uh, you know, so there, there are a couple of other pieces of this film that I wanted to um, think about with you, Jesse, that um, uh, that, that I think are, are worthy of, of conversation. And I'm not talking about the uh, matzo ball soup that uh, uh, Benedict serves uh, Pope Francis, but it is related to it in the sense that, you know, both the movie explores um, elements of these popes' past. Um, that um, that both shape who they are, um, but also uh, 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 weigh them, weigh them down, and uh, make make their leadership uh, uh, and their self understanding much more complicated. In um, in Benedict's case, um, uh, though this wasn't a major plot point in the movie, it's alluded to uh, briefly. Um, we know that uh, he was uh, a member of uh, Hitler Youth uh, when he was growing up in, in Bavaria uh, during the Nazi regime. Uh, and, uh, and then later in the movie, uh, he talks about, uh, of course, his, his role uh, in, the, um, uh, in, in the sex abuse scandals uh, in, in the church um, and asks um, uh, Bergoglio Francis to, uh, to, to, um, to, to hear his confession about that. Um, and, I, and I wondered about about that scene in particular and the, the, um, um, the, you know, the, the nature of, um, of forgiveness in a, um, in, uh, in, uh, in a, in a sin like that. Um, and then, uh, from Francis's perspective, um, there's a, 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 um, a significant moment in the movie where he, where he talks about, you know, why, um, why he doesn't feel like he's worthy of, a, of ascending, um, uh, to the papacy and, and doesn't feel like he'll be uh, supported in, in doing it because of uh, his role uh, in, um, the, uh, in the dirty war in, in Argentina, the, um, the, the, the right-wing military coup of Argentina in, in the late 70s. Um, and, you know, um, uh, and, and I wonder about that too, about, um, uh, about whether he was right or he was wrong about that. 
um, about whether he, you know, um, whether his elevation was was warranted or not, or whether the criticisms of him um, were, were fair or not. Um, it also made me wonder, um, uh, you know, about uh, about spiritual leadership during times of crisis, you know, and there is uh, one stream of thought that says, you know, spiritual leadership during times of crisis is to take on the the prophetic voice of speaking truth to power. And sure. you saw that among uh, many of the uh, priests, um, uh, the the Jesuit priests uh, during um, during the dirty war period, and who were Argentina. very against what Bergoglio was trying to do. Right, exactly. Uh, and Bergoglio uh, wasn't, uh, it, it, or at least the movie was arguing that he wasn't pro regime um, uh, during that period, but he was more trying to protect the church and protect uh, his priests. Um, and so that's, you know, so there's an interesting dynamic there and we're living arguably in, in, in a time of, of rising, you know, uh, authoritarianism, right wing populism, uh, crisis in general. Um, and so what's the role of spiritual leadership during uh, that time? Is it to protect the flock um, or is it to risk everything in speaking truth to power? Uh, you know, it, it's a good point, a good question. Um, right. I think partially it speaks to, um, what the role of rabbi is. I am, you know, I'm certainly going to talk about this from a Jewish perspective. I guess that's true for all clergy. The role of rabbi is certainly teacher, uh, and leader different than shepherd in the way it is, uh, maybe in the Christian world than maybe that role is, is different for a spiritual leader. Um, but we also know that the Talmud says that silence is tantamount to consent. And so if we are silent, if we do not speak up, um, if we're just, you know, playing the cards we're dealt, then what are we really accomplishing? Um, one of my favorite teachings from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, when he wrote about uh, protesting the Vietnam War and his role in the peace movement, uh, he said that, morally speaking, there's no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of human beings, that indifference to evil is worse than evil itself, that in a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. That really sort of speaks to me, this idea, if all are guil uh, some are guilty, but all are responsible, then what role do we play if we are silent? Um, if we are silent because we fear for our own lives, then we're guilty because we're actually not concerned with what is going on to other people. If we're speaking up, speaking truth to power, being that prophetic voice, not to uh, puff ourselves up, to be haughty enough to think that we are prophets, but because we believe we have a role as God's partners in this world to speak truth to power, uh, then that is our role at times when we feel this crossroads in society. Um, when do we stand up to leaders? You know, it's interesting a lot of halakha speaks about how we should praise leaders, that we should say a blessing when we met the king or sovereign, because there is this real sense of fear. But we also know that we have a responsibility to stand up to injustice and stand up to, to hate um, and stand up to such cruel leadership. What are your thoughts? It's, it's, it's a complicated question. I mean, I, I, I agree with a, a lot of, of what you just said. And, and uh, you know, I find myself... Uh, always returning to um, that that Heschel teaching and and that uh, whole essay on on his reasons for involvement in, in the peace movement. 
um, ever since I first encountered it as a teenager, uh, has, has always really spoken to me. But I, I know, Jesse, like you and I were, um, were, were involved uh, in, uh, in, in leading uh, a walkout uh, during then-candidate Trump's uh, speech at the APAC policy conference uh, in, uh, in, in 2016. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, and I remember the, the, uh, fierce debate within the Jewish community at the time about that, um, with, with one side saying, and, and in some sense continuing to argue, um, that, you know, that, that if we, you know, if we want to strengthen Israel, um, and thereby, uh, protect Jewish lives, um, which is, you know, uh, one of the, um, arguments of, um, of, of APAC and, and its supporters and the work that they do um, is that, you know, we have to uh, build relationship, good relationships with people in power, uh, no matter who they are and no matter what we think of any of their other policies. Um, and, and, and you and I were arguing, um, you know, arguably uh, uh, not super effectively, uh, given the nature of uh, the, the reality that we're living in. Uh, but, uh, uh, but we were, we were arguing that, um, uh, that, you know, the, the, uh, Jewish community, you know, starting with, with, with its leadership, which is embodied in, in its most sort of, you know, powerful public voice, which is, which is APAC, um, has a, has a moral responsibility to, uh, um, uh, to, to speak truth, uh, to power and um, and to uh, hold people accountable uh, for what they say and and do that are antithetical to our values and that are uh, dangerous uh, to to other people um, and at the and you know and um, uh, even if it were to uh, negatively impact our own you know sort of um, uh, uh, policy agenda. Uh, that uh, that nevertheless we have a moral responsibility not to um, not to collaborate um, and thereby lend our tacit support to evil when we see it. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody asked me um, after Trump was elected if I knew then when I when we helped organize this rabbinic walkout of his speech that he would become president, would I still have would I still have organized it? You know, did I only do it because he was a candidate that I didn't think would lose because there's a concern that such a walkout um, negatively impacted potentially the president's relationship with the organized Jewish community? And I said, my only disappointment is more people did not walk out with us. Um, that th there's, there's no moment when we feel like we should be protected and other people shouldn't when we will be saved and other people won't. Um, right. I believe it was, um, Mordechai said this to Esther. He, he said, don't think for a second that when Haman destroys and, and murders the Jewish community, that you'll be saved. Right. And right, in this right. moment, you're no better off than, than all of us. It doesn't matter. Uh, who you rub elbows with. It doesn't matter who you buddy up to. Your fate is the same as ours. And we need to stand side by side, united against that fate. So does that mean if you were in Bergoglio's shoes uh, in, you know, during the dirty war period in, in Argentina that you um, would have um, uh, uh, essentially risked your life to stand up to the, um, the regime 
um, uh, uh, rather than um, try to you know build positive relationships in order to um, in order to save the people that were closest to you. You know, it's it's really difficult to say, right? It's easy for me to, sitting here comfortably right, right, right. to say that I would risk my life. Um, I appreciate what Bergoglio, what the, uh, the eventual Pope Francis was trying to do, right? He was trying to save lives within the system that was in place, not trying to rock the boat too much because he thought if he did that, um, then it would cause more death and more violence and more persecution. I think there's a time for resistance and there's a time for sort of silent resistance, right? There's a time for for Moshe banging on Pharaoh's palace door and saying, let my people go. And there's a time for, in secret, Shifra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives, right. saving Israeli baby boys. Right, right. Sticking uh, babies, baby and, right. Sticking babies in baskets and sending them down the Nile. And, and I, I like to think that in each situation where the reality is a bit different, we react differently. I, I hope that I have the courage to stand up to tyrants um, I think sometimes when, even in this current climate, um, we may be just as guilty of that. I, I think some of our colleagues are guilty of that. When religious leaders stand up uh, to Trump, are we just doing it so that we can get a like on social media? Or are we doing it uh, because we're really trying to make change in society? Real resistance takes work. Uh, it takes work when it comes to policies and when it comes to political agenda and when it comes to passing laws and when it comes to elections. Um, real resistance to change a culture of bigotry and discrimination takes work. Uh, but I, I want to shift gears slightly because mm -hmm. I, I acknowledge um, the guilt that Pope Francis held onto for so long, at least um, in this fictionalized account he held on to because of um, his apathy or consent during this dirty war in Argentina. Uh, and, and I think that we live in a faith that allows us to repent every day, not just on Yom Kippur, right? We beat our chest three times a day during the Amidah and say, Salach lano vinu kichatanu. Right, forgive us for we have sinned, pardon us for we have transgressed. Oftentimes, it's much easier to forgive somebody else that is doing tshuva, that is repenting, asking for forgiveness, than it is to forgive ourselves. Like going back to this teaching that I said from Brachot, that we should be more lenient on others and more stringent on ourselves. We're harder on ourselves, and so we hold on to that guilt that we feel when we've done something wrong, a lot longer than the anger or disgust that we feel when somebody else has wronged us. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really great point. Um, we, you know, we, we tend to hold uh, our guilt uh, and uh, to, to, you know, hold ourselves accountable um, with, with a lot more severity um, than we usually uh, treat other people. It's not universally true. Uh, of everybody, it's not universally true of every of every injury um, or, uh, or or misdeed that 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 we might do. Um, I, you know, sometimes I would say that we might be uh, too quick to for, to forgive ourselves. Um, but uh, but I but personally, I, I you know um, see it as um, um, uh, you know something that I wrestle with all the time is that I'm you know I I I, 
I say, you know, I, I say uh, very negative things about myself um, that I would never permit anybody to say about uh, about uh, other people, especially people that I that I love and and I care about. Um, you know, there's a teaching in Pirkei Avot in, in, um, uh, that says, um, uh, "Do not regard yourself as an evil person." Uh, and um, I, I believe it's uh, chapter two. Uh, Mishnah 18, uh, according to some accountings, because the, uh, the the accountings of it um, are, uh, are are different. Um, but I think that that's a really powerful teaching. You know, you think about like you first encounter it as like, oh, who thinks of themselves as an evil person? But I think that actually the truth is, a lot of us do. Um, a lot of us, um, you know, look at ourselves as being unworthy or kind of like seeing the successes that we have in our life and say like, you know, wait until everybody finds out what a fraud I am. Um, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, just kind of like, um, hoping that the, that the, you know, injury that you cause to someone or to yourself, you know, like doesn't get brought to the light of day. Um, and, um, and, and in reality, um, if it were somebody else that had brought that to us, we would say, are you kidding me? Like, we didn't experience that as, as, as negative as you did and, or, or that injury that you did to me, like, uh, I'm, you know, easily willing to forgive that, um, but we don't let ourselves off the hook. Sure, I, I don't think it's about letting yourself off the hook, um, right? Chuva is not about. Sorry, yeah, that, that that's not that was an inelegant uh, uh, way of saying what I meant. Um, uh, we we um, we we refuse to um, to uh, uh, let ourselves through the process of forgiveness. Absolutely. I think that that's fair. And the message from that is really don't be so hard on yourself sometime. Right. We are we are not perfect. Um, Rava teaches uh, in Brachot that the Torah was not given to angels. Right? The Torah was given to humanity. We are not celestial beings. Um, God gave the Torah to humanity with our imperfections. Uh, and I think we need to acknowledge that we are imperfect. I think we need to acknowledge that we make mistakes, and Shuva is a part of that. Um, how our past influences our future is an interesting one. I mean, I see this with the political campaigns, with the presidential campaigns now, uh, that the longer you have a political career, the more baggage you have that somebody could use against you even if your positions have evolved, uh, there's no place in politics, and I hope there's a place in, in Judaism and in all faiths for tshuva that the positions we once had don't, does not need to be the positions that we always have. Going back to my idea of evolving halakha, right? that is my idea of Judaism, that our understanding of Torah and Jewish law evolve as society evolves. Right. On the other hand, I think that there is um, a you know a, a real uh, concern, a real a real fear that um, that we um, uh, that we that we don't sufficiently um, uh, see ourselves as being accountable for mistakes that we made in the past. You know, I think so. I think that that's one of the features of um, of you know Trumpism um, is that there's you know that there's it's like don't don't retreat an inch, don't give. Don't show uh, publicly, you know, any any remorse um, or any um, uh, uh, any sense of of wrongdoing. 
um, because that will only be used as ammunition uh, by by your opponents. And I think that that um, you know I, I saw it here in in Virginia um, when our governor had a um, a, a, a blackface uh, scandal last year, um, and you know he uh, Governor Northam is. is probably about the mo- the least Trumpian politician I've ever known or met. And I um, have been uh, fortunate to, to have uh, uh, good opportunities to get to know him a little bit. Um, but I, but I felt like his response in that moment was, was very Trumpian, right? Like don't, um, don't over apologize, don't over admit culpability and just power through. Um, and I, and I, and I worry about what that, um, does and what that teaches uh, to uh, to our children, and you know, and uh, um, and and I, I think that there's a sense of that in you know taking this back to the film. There's a there's an aspect of that in in the church too, right? That there hasn't been um, a um, until recently, at least, um, a real uh, public accounting uh, for the. Uh, for for the crimes of the of the church and the uh, child sex abuse scandals, the responsibility of the church and child sex abuse scandals, and I even I felt that in watching the movie where where Benedict kind of unloads his guilt about this, uh, confesses his guilt about this to Francis, and 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 treats that encounter, uh, you know, as if a big weight was lifted off his shoulders. And I said, well, what about all the victims? You know, what about all the people that that have no whose lives have been destroyed and are ruined from this? Are you saying that that you know your conscience is is lifted, but you haven't actually done atonement for um, for for this sin? Sure, you know I, I um I, when we had a Pride Shabbat uh, a couple of years ago in June, I made a point of on behalf of the conservative movement, right, doing tshuva, apologizing to the members of our queer community who for too long had felt ostracized um, by the movement, um, had felt like there was something wrong with them. Even if that wasn't me specifically who was guilty of doing that, there is a communal fault, right? Even if a priest has done nothing wrong by um, hanging their their hat, or I guess hanging their collar, uh, if you will, with the Catholic Church, there is... Um, a communal chuva that needs to be had. And until that's done, the progress that's necessary uh, won't truly take place because that continues to hang over them. Uh, you need to be very specific in the chuva that you do. Uh, right. Even even Halakha says this. You need to be very specific. And if after the third time you are not forgiven, God forgives you even if humanity doesn't forgive you, but that's only if you're specific in that tshuva and intentional in that tshuva. Um, and certainly Benedict wasn't truthfully as progressive as Pope Francis is. I'm not sure he's been as specific as he should be in the tshuva that the Catholic Church needs to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's a really good point. And, and, and what you're just offering there, Jesse, takes me back to um, the Heschel essay that you referred to before, where he says, you know, in, in the um, in, with regard to the um, to the crimes committed in the name of a free society, uh, uh, or in the context of a free society, some are guilty and all are responsible, right? So, uh, so any given uh, priest or any given pope 
uh, may not be guilty of um, of you know the horrific uh, sex abuse crimes that um, have been um, uh, both alleged and proven um, against uh, many many uh, priests and others in the church hierarchy. Um, but nevertheless, there's um, there's culpability uh, across the board, and I think that the same is true for uh, for for us, like you said, within conservative Judaism with regard to LGBT issues and, and other things and within the Jewish community, broadly speaking. Um, and, and of course, within America, within American society, within our communities, there's a, a text that I was teaching to um, my uh, pre B'nai Mitzvah students at the synagogue. We had uh, um, a family learning program the other day and we were teaching about um, social responsibility and that dimension of uh, mitzvot of commandments that are uh, really in some ways, um, an undiscussed or a relatively undiscussed part of the, the mitzvah that's part of bar mitzvah. You know, we talk a lot about the haftorah that the kids do, but not a lot of, about um, what are the, what are the, you know, broader um, uh, responsibilities that we uh, end up having as adult Jews. And I brought the teaching from the Talmud that says um, all who have the ability to protest against members of their family, uh, but don't do so, um, are held as uh, responsible uh, for uh, for the sins of their family, and the same goes for the sins of your uh, of your city, and the same goes for the sins of the entire world. That if that if we remain silent, if we don't speak out against them, if we don't uh, take part in the solution or lead the change, um, then we may not be guilty of those sins, but we're held as responsible. We're seen um, as 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 complicit. And as uh, bearing culpability for those same wrongdoings. Absolutely, I think I think that's a really good point. Um, there's a difference between guilt and responsibility. We have uh, a chiyuv. We have an obligation um, to each other and to society, to God, if we are people of faith and if we see ourselves as God's partners. Um, before we wrap up, Mike, I just want to bring up one quick point because this, um, well, this wasn't about the movie itself, but it's certainly about Pope Francis. And this certainly came up in the Jewish community when he was elected, first elected Pope, uh, that there was a, a great deal made about Pope Francis and his, uh, relationship with Rabbi, uh, Skorka, uh, who is a rabbi in Buenos Aires. Right. Um, he's actually well-known, uh, Masorti rabbi, conservative rabbi, um, he uh, was a part of the Seminario there, mm -hmm. um, which is affiliated with the Masorti movement, the conservative movement. Um, and he and Rabbi Squarka wrote a book on heaven and earth, which is really a publication of a conversation of their views and dialogue and friendship um, and faith. Uh, they became such good friends that when Pope Francis became Pope, Rabbi Squarka visited the Vatican many times. Uh, the Pope hosted him for Shabbat dinner and even had the kitchen kosher so that he could serve him a kosher Shabbat dinner. They visited Israel together. And it speaks to really a, an evolution and also the anti-Semitism that once upon a time um, used to exist in the Vatican and the Catholic Church uh, and the close friendship that this Pope has with another religious leader. I, I think about that... Um, really in response to rising anti-Semitism that exists and bigotry of all kinds, that we 
are stronger in our allyship and our commitment to building relationship with the other. Um, and that really came out with Pope Francis. I think Pope Francis speaks a great deal with other faith leaders and other religious groups and organizations and religions because of the importance of building partnership and allyship. That's the only way we truly combat hate and discrimination. And I would encourage all of us as faith leaders to do that more, not just create partnership uh, with right rabbis with other rabbis doing podcasts about pop culture together, um, but really partnership with uh, rabbis and imams and ministers and pastors and priests and uh, all faith leaders coming together because that's the only way um, that we are stronger stronger together right and, and i just add on top of that because i i agree with everything that you just said i say it's not only true of faith leaders it's also true of of faith practitioners or, or people of conscience uh, who may not uh, have any particular faith um that um uh, that we that we create a uh, a much more strong uh, a much stronger much more vibrant uh social fabric when we re you know reach reach out and beyond um our you know, our own cultures and our own traditions and, and our own, um, you know, silos and, and our own echo chambers. We build meaningful relationships, uh, you know, across borders uh, and, and across boundaries. Um, it's, um, you know, it's, it's ultimately, I think, what will save us. And I think that what Pope Francis demonstrates in his leadership and what I know you do, Jesse, and I strive to, to um, uh, emulate this in, in my leadership, too, um, is um, is is an is acknowledgement that uh, that that God is bigger uh, than any one faith tradition, uh, and uh, you know, so a, a Muslim uh, a friend of mine here uh, once said to me, you know, ask yourself, you know, what religion is God, right? And uh, and of course, the answer is God is none of our religions, uh, and so um, and so if we if we really see ourselves as being um, servants of of the one. Uh, and as uh, you know, uh, as as created in the image of the one, uh, then uh, then that means that we have um, a kinship uh, with with everybody, and that it is um, a, a spiritual uh, and religious demand. It's a sacrament uh, to uh, build relationships uh, uh, beyond our our own cultures and traditions. Amen. Amen. So until next time, I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I am Rabbi Michael Knopf, not yet the Pope. <laughs> just the, you're, you're just the uh, Archbishop of Richmond, Virginia. That's right. And I'm here with, as always, the Archbishop and Cardinal of South Orange, New Jersey. And we look forward to continuing the conversation next time. Take care, everyone. Take care. <laughs>